Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you, I um, I did something I thought I'd never do the other day because we're in a new studio, which, by the way, is a lovely place. And I always take pictures of my guests from my website. And I had to go buy a, a, a selfie stick. And I never thought it. But the worst thing about it was I was leaving the house and I took my prescription sunglasses and put them on. And I put my old sunglasses, my regular, I mean, my regular glasses in my glass case. So as I got and parked at Best Buy in Burbank, I got out of my car and I noticed I only had my sunglasses. And I'm telling you, I look like the biggest douche in the world walking into Best Buy, buying a selfie stick and being 50. So I basically paid and I ran out of the store. Anyway, we have a great show today. We have a, a accomplished writer who has been an actor, has been in everything. We have Lou Schneider. Hey, don't Lou. Hi, Steve. How are you? Good. I got to ask you, I was reading in your uh, biography that you're a huge Boston fan. I'm a huge Boston fan. Now, what's your take on the Brady thing? In, in all honesty, I mean, not not the myopic Boston Brady fan. Brady thing, I always, this is, I, it, look, if you can cheat in our culture, uh, you must. Okay. You <laughs> must cheat. And if and especially, if, if it can be done for money, people are cheating at it. Why are we surprised? Also, why are we surprised, you know, you know, look, I'm a, I'm a huge Patriot fan, but since Gino Capaletti retired... I don't think they're not cheating. I mean, okay. they've been cheating. People are cheating. We cheat. They cheat on each other. They cheat on their wives. They cheat at every single thing they do. Professional athletes, like, why are we surprised that, you know, oh my God, this this guy, we, we trained to be a bruising carnivore. Yeah, he attacked someone, you know, somewhere off the field. Of course, we've trained him as an attack dog. Like, what are we talking about? Like, so, so it's terrible. Uh, I don't believe that the Patriots are the only organization cheating. I think they cheat. I think Bill Belichick is a super cheater. Um, and uh, Robert Kraft went to my high school. He's the only one who's not cheating because he went to my high school okay. where we don't raise cheaters. Well, see, I'm, I'm glad you say that because I have, I have friends who are Boston fans. Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, Aaron Rodgers. And I'm like, guys, just, you know, first of all, Brady doesn't have to cheat. Brady's the best quarterback ever. But, but what's more American than being the best and making sure no one can come right. close to you by seizing another example. Like, what better example of capitalism? By the way, I sound like a raving, raving communist here. I'm not. But what, what like, what is more American than, see, like, mm, I already have every advantage. Mm, let's make sure I can grind these people into pulp with a little more of an edge. That's what we're doing. Now, you grew up in Boston, the Boston area, but yes. you were born in North Carolina. Born in North Carolina. I was just listening to, uh, uh, there's another guy with a radio show, Howard Stern. I was just, he was talking to James Taylor. Boy, if you could get him, that'd be some shit. James Taylor? Yeah, I tried to get him next oh, time. I, I no, Actually, <laughs> I, I was trying to get Don Felder, who's also yes. an Eagle. And I talked to his PR people, and they said, if he's... there's like I love that old music. Oh. You know, I had that, and I had Sherry Carey from the the uh, Runaways, the lead singer. And their PR people said, when when they're doing something, they'll come on. And yeah. I was like, oh, that'd be awesome. But, but James Taylor and I... he uh, James Taylor and I. You know, he's never met me. Uh, James <laughs> Taylor... I'm listening to a story. Like I was born in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and my mom, I remember her talking about the Taylors, a crazy family, like that that family, those kids were rambunctious, I think was the term she used, that those Taylor boys, evidently he was pretty rambunctious. Um, See, he would never get it from his music. <laughs> no, <laughs> no that he all, you outgrow rambunction, rambunctionality. That's that's the term. You outgrow that. So what, what age were you when you moved to so Boston? So I moved to Boston when I was seven. And um, I became a Red Sox fan shortly thereafter during the glory years of... Uh, Joe LaHood and um, Juan Benicas, and they actually didn't overlap. I think I think Benicas actually replaced LaHood. Oil Can Boyd, back when I'm, players had great nicknames like Oil Can. I remember I remember I had a, uh, who was it? It was your outfielder, uh, Dwight Evans had the best arm. I remember yes. he had Yeah, an he amazing had a gun. He, a gun from right field. And, uh, you know, which is what people use as an excuse for me when I played right field. No, 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 you're like Dwight Evans. In, in Boston, they could sell a Jew on right. playing right field. With, <laughs> you're like Dewey Evans. Yeah, except for one thing, he's real good and I'm really bad. See, I did this. I'm legally blind <laughs> in one eye. So I would play right field because you'd yeah. never get, there was no lefties sure. when I was growing up. And every once in a while, you get that hit. But you sit in the right field, you do nothing. You might as well pick daisies. My son, who's the worst. My, there are two kinds of kids who play right field. There are spinners. And there are diggers. There are you kids who just spin in a circle aimlessly. And then there are kids who actually dig sort of patterns in the turf. And my son, who's a terrible athlete, my oldest son, um, is so gifted. He was both a spinner and a digger. And my brother, who was a junior high school, was a high school baseball coach, actually, went to a Little League game with me one time. And as I was watching my son Marty spin and dig, just turned to me and said, this must be very difficult for you. 
Yes, it was incredibly difficult for me. I wasn't terrible. I was okay. Well, you're an okay athlete. When I was you're all right. But now, what made you get into this path of comedy, acting, writing? I mean, was it something at a certain age? Some of my dad was huge into comedy albums. You know, I, I don't really think of this very much, and I don't get asked, because no one's interested in hearing what I have to say. No one asks me. Um, but uh, my dad had the 2,000-year-old man... He had it. He had such an early copy of that that it was on an album. It was just a part of a compilation of comedy hits, which included what it was was football, which is an old recording of Andy Griffith being a hayseed going to a football game he's never been to before. Um, Stan Freeberg was on that album. There were a bunch of different comedy pieces. Frank Fontaine, like a bunch of different pieces. And the two thousand year old man was on there. My dad loved it. He loved Jackie Mason. I love Bill Cosby. Um, before, as we say, the troubles. Uh, you know, I was a huge comedy fan. And then I got into my own stuff, which is like, you know, Carlin and Richard Pryor and Steve Martin, of course, was huge. You know, in 1978, that was a giant album. It was giant. I still remember when I was younger, I, I you know, because back then there was record stores. You'd yeah. go in and I remember I found a George Carlin album. Which one? I mean, they're Toledo Window Box. Uh-huh, because which... I, I was big into AM and FM and... um. And class clown. Well, Toledo Window Box. I had no idea what a Toledo that. Window Box was. It was grow potted, and my parents. Were oh, so... I thought it was like a Cleveland steamer. I thought it was yeah, something yeah. disgusting. <laughs> my parents were so you know out sure. of it. They thought. And the funny thing is, now everyone censors stuff, but this was like I'm listening, and I just because his voice was funny, like yeah. jumbo shrimp. And yeah, as a little kid, you'd laugh. Crap. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing, and we make fun of it now, but it was so so amazing. I mean, we used to sit. We were so dumb as kids. We could sit and just watch. The record spin, yeah. knowing that we're getting to the end to that sort of, you know, shinier part in the middle. Oh, we're going to have to change the record in a minute. Yeah, you know. So you, you, you grew up liking the comedy. At what point? Because you went to the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah, I did comedy once in high school. I did. Uh, there was a thing at Brookline High called uh, Everybody's Concert. And it was basically a talent show. Um, and I couldn't. You know, they, they wanted you to come in for rehearsal. I remember the problem was, I knew a guy who was on the committee and I said, I'm going to do stand-up. And I was funny enough, I, I guess, in class that he said, oh, okay, you'll do stand-up. I never done stand-up before. I was basically going to do impressions of teachers. Um, and then they wanted me to rehearse. But I knew I knew well enough that that would be terrible, that they would never put me on the show if I rehearsed. Like if you rehearse to an empty, if you rehearse to an empty auditorium with, you know, three kids you know, in the second row, you're going to bomb. So I just said, I basically had to get them to trust me. And I did what I said I would do. I basically did impressions of teachers and, and I kind of killed, I mean, it was working for, you know, it was working for an audience that knew who I was doing. Now I can't do Miss Young. Right. My kid's always like, Louie, what's an integer divided by integers or what? Sit down, Jimmy Khan. That it's an integer. Sit down. Um, so that was Miss Khan. Uh, and that was Ms. Young. And it, and, and it did well there. It didn't do well here. But it did well there. And so then when I got to college... Um, what was your major? I was a history major. Okay. Um, and, and my mother had suggested that I go, in, go out for this uh, comedy group. Um, she had gone to Penn. And she said, uh, you should try for Mask and Wig, which is like Harvard's Hasty Pudding. It's an all-male group. You have, there are women, women's parts in sketches. You have to play them as, as a guy. Um, uh, of course, you know, I realized later, you know, half of us were gay. Uh, no, I was not in the gay half, but but I was like, oh, really? All these guys dressed up in women's clothes, they were gay? Gee, we never noticed. Uh, anyway, so um, my mom suggested I join this group. And of course, because it was my mother suggesting it, I didn't do it for two years. Maybe the biggest mistake of my life. I, I didn't join this group. But I, I, my, my girlfriend, who is now my wife, saw this group and said, you should, you should see these guys. They're really funny. And I went and I watched them. They were fantastic. And I got incredibly jealous. Um, and they were on a bill for this thing called Spring Fling, which is a big three-day festival at Penn and they needed um and the mask and wig guys were on it and I said I got to do something with that and they needed a host so I went to the committee and I said I'll MC and I did some of my material for them and um, they said great you'll do three days uh it was about like 14 hours of material I had about five minutes um and I got I got slaughtered uh, but but they said the way they enticed me was they said Paul Provenza had done it okay and Provenza had gone to Penn and he was a mask and wigger so I was gonna do whatever he did and um, and Provenza, of course, you know, at that time, like he graduated college, he went out on the road. He was opening for Diana Diana Ross and the Supremes. He was opening for, uh, he was, you know, I, I can't remember. He, he opened for a million acts. I thought this is the way to do. Yeah, it. He, he told me this, the, on the show. He told me the story about how like there was no comedy scene then, really, and so they they just started doing it in like a basement, and yeah, uh, it was just amazing. And then years later, that's where I started doing comedy. It was Philly, and there's a comedy works in the Comedy Factory outlet, yeah, and it was a booming, booming scene. I mean, everybody came through there. Yeah, so you knew the mix. Did you know the mix nuts? Did, or, I, I knew. 
knew the name. There was the Mixed Nuts, and then there was another group that Kate Flannery was in. Oh, I love her. And she was, it was, I don't think, I think they called themselves Comic Relief before there was actually yeah, Comic Relief. They, they, that was, pro, I was probably gone by then, but but Mixed Nuts were a couple older guys, a couple of mask and wiggers were in that group. A guy named Joe Phillip, you know, it's so funny now he's like, you know, big lawyer but anyway but Prevenza knew all those guys and so I was going to do that and of course I got murdered it was during the day with kids doing a lot of acid um, guys throwing stuff and that's how I knew I was going to marry my wife because she had that she was one of the first people to say and I and I've st you still get it at, at every shitty gig in the world people still come up to you afterwards and they they touch you lightly on the elbow and they say I thought you were funny. <laughs> I've been getting that for so long. My wife, I, I thought you were funny. And she, and she, she had that great look of it. She was, she feared for my life. I had no material. I wore a Budweiser, it was 90 degrees. I wore a Budweiser sweater because I thought that made me look cool. And a fedora, I thought that made me look cool. Uh, <laughs> it was awful. I, 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 I was, I had no business, but I, but you know, if it, but of course, you know, I got, maybe I got two laughs and over the course of the three days, if I got the two laughs, I, by the way, I think I bailed on the second day. I said, you know what? The setting up of the bands behind me is just, you know, detracting from the whole experience. Why don't, why don't, why don't we just bail? And they let me, they let me uh, quit. But, um, but the fact that, uh, you get two laughs in the six days or the, you know, in the, in the 14 hours, like that's enough. I did great. I killed. I was only killing for a second, but I, 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 I heard. I killed for, I heard uh, for, for yeah. 1%. I killed. Yeah, 1%. exactly. So you get done that, you graduate. Mm -hmm. And then what do you do? Do you, now do you sit there and go, I want to do stand up or where did you, well, you I had, I had a direct, I had a director at that show say, you should go to Chicago and take classes at second city. So, um, I went out to Chicago and I took classes at the players workshop, workshop of second city. And I never auditioned for the troupe. It was like a 19, this is 1984, 85 in my, uh, I did do the kid show there. Um, one of the other members of that kid show cast was Bob Odenkirk. Um, we were, it was a uh, leaping lizards at Cinderella was the name of the show. And Bob was the prairie godfather. And I can't remember who I played. I had a lead too, but I can't, I was Prince charming and something. And, uh, anyway, so it was those, those guys. And there were comedy team out there at that time named Stephen Leo, the Stephen Leo show. And those guys ended up writing the Santa Claus and kicking and screaming and a bunch of other movies. Um, and uh, those guys were still to my way of thinking the, the funniest duo I've ever seen on stage. Um, and they encouraged me and uh, I started doing stand up. I'd been part of a comedy team with a guy named Bill Holmes who moved out here and um, we sort of ripped those guys off, Steve and Leo, and then we stopped ripping them off when Bill went to do an equity show, and I just started doing solo stand-up. This is 1985, and if you were halfway decent, you got on stage right away. They needed you. There were brick walls that needed to be covered by comedians in this country, and I was one of those. And I went out on the road with Steve and Leo as their opener, and it was great because I'd do 20, and those guys would do about 40 or 45, and then we'd improvise for about 25 minutes, and we were fairly good as a three-man improv troupe. Um, and then, uh, so then I got, then thinking I'd conquered Chicago. And at that time it was like, it was a pretty bad scene. I mean, there were some great guys there, but, but percentage wise, not like New York. Then I went to New York and, um, I got in at Catch a Rising Star pretty quickly. Louis Veranda. Schneider. Yeah. Let me tell you something. <laughs> you stay close. You're going to, I'm going to put you on. Um, that's a, that, so I got on for Veranda a lot. He was very, very kind to me. And, um, then Jeff Garland got me in at the comic strip. And, um, cause we'd known each other from Chicago and then, um, I used to work in Boston. They would never fly anybody into Boston since my parents were there. I would stay in my, in my room right. <laughs> and then I had a place to stay. It was in my room. And, uh, all I had to do was put up with my mother knocking on the door, you know, like, you know, an hour before the gig saying the Sapers want to know if they should come to your performance. <laughs> it's not a performance and they shouldn't come cause they're going to hate it anyway. So wrote in Bill Sapers. Can you save them seats? I can't save them seats. <laughs> Ma, they're going to leave after you. They're going to dinner. No, they're not going to leave after me. They're, they can't walk out on the headliner. These are the things I had to put up. I know the, I know the deal. <laughs> what is the name of this club again? The Naughty Pine. Not the Naughty Pine, the Naughty Pine. What's the difference? Mom, get out of my room. I'm sleeping. Anyway, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a fighter before a fight. You want to be alone. You want to rest. You want to nap. It's true. And, and your mother's coming in here. Do you, want a do you want any kind of grilled cheese? I have two cheeses. Ma! <laughs> I don't want to perform for you. Because my stomach. I used to never perform for because like, because my stomach. And yeah. then you want to eat after eat the show. Eat after the show when they offer you just the left side of the yeah. menu. And it'd be like, it'd be, yeah, and it'd be like eleven o'clock, and you're like, do I really want nachos at eleven o'clock? Yes, you do. And then you, and we, I was young, so of course you did. Nachos, now nachos. I would wake up like, oh my god, I'm going to die. Kill you. That nachos <laughs> dipped in bourbon, of course. <laughs> no, um, no. So then I, so then I started doing um, comedy in New York, and then I got lucky. I, I got a job as a, um, 
Nickelodeon game show host on a show called Make the Grade, um, an incomprehensible kids' version of Jeopardy, pretty much. Um, it harnessed the technology of the European train and alert board that just would flap, 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 flap. That's, that's basically how the questions came up on the board. Um, and uh, so I did that for a little while. Then I got a show in 1990 called Wish You Were Here, which is about a young guy who goes around Europe with a video camera. He loses his house and his girlfriend and his job in the same day. And so I, I played that guy. I played a guy who, and I got shipped off to Europe. So you, they sent you to Europe? Yeah. I, well, the pilot I shot in Hungary, which was a fantastic, amazing gig. I shot, I made less money doing that than I made waiting tables. It turned out like, I think when you figure it out by hour, I was probably making like, <laughs> like 65 bucks an hour. And on a good night on waiting tables, I was making about 70 if I, if I was really killing it. Um, but then, so then I, so I had a network credit. I was on this, I was on CBS. And then I, after that, I got, uh, I, one of my old friends from Penn, uh, was a sitcom writer uh, named Alan Kirschenbaum, and he was able, you know, to get me. Once you have a lead on a TV show, other people will give you a lead on a TV show. So I got this uh, show called uh, Down the Shore on Fox. I watched that. I, mean, uh, I, I know I, I did watch that because I mean, well, okay. I growing up, we would go to in the summer in college. Me and my buddies would get a house in either Stone Harbor or Avalon. Sure. And so. For us, and we always had friends, like, let's say we had a friend in, you know, Manasquan, and you go, oh, let's take a trip over Road to his house, you know, and we would be there working in restaurants in the summer. And for us, and because down the shore, we got it, which I always tell people, and this to this day, because when you see, meet people at a party or meet someone, they go, oh, Jer Jersey Shore. And I'm like, no, 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 it's, no not it's not like that. Because, like like and the funny thing about that show, as I remember, because there was like a teacher, and there's like always like seven people yeah. that rent, and no one, like, they don't really know. Like, you know, hey, I know Lou. You know one guy. Yeah, and Lou know. knows this girl, and she knows. And then you sit there and you go in, and there's always two that are idiots. Yeah. One's a party animal, one girl's a slut. Yeah. And it's, it's that always happens. But I remember that show. Yeah, the house share. It was, it was just trying to pick up on the chemistry of the house. Sort of friends with ugly people. Right. Except I shouldn't say ugly people because. To, it, I, and I, Gun was Anna Gunn was and in it. Pamela and Adlon, Pamela Adlon, who is who are, awesome. They're both awesome. She's unbelievable. They're both fantastic. <laughs> and we've kept and Tom McGowan, who was the wizard on Broadway in um, Wicked, okay. and has been for you know thousands of shows. And he's been, <laughs> by the way, he, we used him on Raymond like crazy. We used him. He's a great character actor. He was on Frasier for a long time. He played Kenny, the manager of the station. He, he's okay. just he's just a pros pro, you know. And um, and he's coming out to to do a play here. Um, at the Globe, I can't remember what the play is, but some it's something I will see, and it's and it's something sort of famous, and I and I can't believe I'm, it's slipping my mind now. Technicolor Dream, yeah, it's okay. something great like that. It's no, because I know I know I saw I saw it, a group on something for that. It's so. your good man Charlie Brown. That's who okay. he is. He's Peppermint Patty, <laughs> yeah, asshole. <laughs> anyway, no, so that's so yeah. Uh, so anyway, so but yeah, and the other guy um, once stuck a gun in my ribs uh, as a joke um, on stage at Warner Hollywood. And he's like, and I said, is, is that loaded? He goes, why would I, he had an Australian accent, but he played Italian and he's, why would I carry an unloaded gun? That's not safe. I'm like, it's not safe to stick any gun in my ribs, <laughs> but I was a young actor. I was learning. Um, and so then after that, Phil Rosenthal, the key to this whole thing, Phil Rosenthal was a writer on down the shore with his then partner, Al Oliver Goldstick. And so I moved on to, uh, you know, you never, you never, throw anybody out in this business. You know, you remember who your friends are. And I've always been friends with the right people, I guess. And Peter Tolan, a great writer, happened to be the writer in Hungary. We're the only two American people there right. other than a couple of producers. And Tolan and I had struck up a friendship. So when I moved out here, he was writing for Murphy Brown and he had a, a deal at Disney. And we got this show based on car talk on the air, but it became the George Wentz show and it quickly became not car talk. But George Wentz show and uh, Pat Finn was in that. Pat, the great Pat Finn Played was his in brother. That. Yes, yeah. exactly. God, Steve, you know too many bad things. No, you Pat should, was on my show. So we talk. Should, I, believe I, me, I, I get so many different Chicago you actors. Should, I, you should do a hard reset of your entire life. <laughs> you know the wrong things. Anyway, so yeah, so Pat Finn. So I met Peter Tolan, and then Tolan sort of gave me my first writing job. And Tolan was the one who said when I was I had gotten a pilot in like '94, and I was also working on the George Wentz show and. And and I was it was a question of whether I was going to leave one to do the other. And even though the George Wentz show went away, it got me a producer's credit, and it got me in the writer. I was already in the writer's guild, but it got me a producer's credit. And Tolan said these words. He said, "I'm giving you your freedom. Don't you understand that? I'm giving you your freedom." And it was a tough thing to handle because you know, ego wise, you think you're going to be a star, you think you're going to be an actor, and a, and a, and a comedian. And I just done a, an HBO special on it, so I thought you know I was still going to do a lot of dates. But that my wife was always already 
not thrilled with the idea. We had a kid, and she she was not thrilled with the idea of me going back on the road for right. thirty weeks a year, um, which I had been doing. And that's a hard. People don't understand. Like people always say, the road the road life is a, is hard. I mean, you know, it's it's not. Well, picture a road. Yeah. Not, Already not great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but no, a lot of people think it's a glorious thing. Like I know comics are going. I want to go on the road. I'm like, no, you don't. No, there, there are a couple of you know people always paint that great thing. Yeah, like there's the, oh this gig, and I was like, yes, there's one yes, in every ten. Yes, Brian Regan. <laughs> yes. yes, Brian Regan did the you know did a private gig at Atlantis for the Eagles because they're doing the Eagles uh, family outing and so they paid him $175,000 for 20 minutes and he got a massage every day and three rounds of golf. <laughs> yes, that's what Brian Regan got. But he didn't go he didn't to, go to Wichita. Right, he was not doing Scott Hansen's tour. He did not do Grandma's in Duluth on February 7th. He did not do that gig. Did you work for John Schuler? Do you remember him? I did not work for him. He was Connecticut and stuff, right? Yeah, okay. I didn't yeah. work for him. Okay, but I, I did work. I did work for John Yoder. Okay, who I remember. Was the, who was the same thing? I never worked for him. And there was also a Keith Gisser. Oh yeah, there were Gisser gigs. And yes, his gigs would suck. We'd always say they were consolations because you would be like, okay, I'll be in Pennsylvania, then I'm gonna go to West Virginia, then yeah. I'm gonna go to Indiana, and then I'm coming back. To York, Pennsylvania, yeah. even though I started in Harrisburg. Couldn't you just do it like this, 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 this? No, it was the greatest abuse of the phrase, on your way back. Yeah. <laughs> on your way back. I, I'm in Boston. On your way back, you're going to go to Fargo. On your way back. On your way back to where? Uh, I remember guys like Steve Segrin going, I, this this is where my education on the road took place, where Steve Segrin would say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to Pittsburgh. I'll see you tomorrow. And we'd be in Chicago when he said that. And I'd say, but Pittsburgh's 10 hours away. He goes, yeah. And he would drive 10 hours. Stay one hour, do his hour, get paid, and drive back. That was his 20 hours, and he didn't want to stay there. And I and I, I got very good at driving very long distances and turning right around, just getting paid. And I used right to get the, uh, the Jolt Cola. Yeah. I remember Jolt Cola yeah. driving on the 80. Yeah. You'd be like, oh, my I, God. I, I, I drove a Toyota Tercel, and I, I borrowed a guy's CB, and the, and the truckers would go, is that you and that rice burner? And I was like, just keep me awake. I call, you can swear. You can make <laughs> jingoistic, racist comments, whatever you want to say. Like, I just keep me awake. That that was my deal. Um, So so I'm going to go back to this thing. So I do have to say Jeff Garland, I don't know if you, you've had him on the show. No, but Jeff, Jeff is an old friend and i you know i now work with him on the goldbergs which i'll we'll get which into. we will talk that's one of my I, favorite I, we'll shows because it's but my it's my hood garland knew <laughs> the the soft underbelly of the comic and he would call up first of all my wife hated garland for a really long time because this is in the days when you know people would answer their phones or it wouldn't go to voicemail or first of all he would take up all your voice tape if he called and you had a tape he would take up all your voice tape so you had to answer to stop him from doing that and then my wife would answer and he would say uh, there's Lou Schneider there and he would do his deep voice he had a couple different characters and my wife would say he's not I may take a message yes um this is Earl from Cleveland and I wonder if he was available on the 18th he'd know that I was available he'd know like I in conversation right. with him. and so Liz would look at a calendar that I think we had on the wall and she'd say um he is available uh, tell him to give me a call back and so I'd call him back and he'd give me some number that I didn't recognize. He'd be at somebody else's house or something. And I'd call him and he'd oh, yes, uh, Lou, this is Earl from Cleveland. I spoke to your wife. Um, I was wondering if you had the night of the 18th available. I do. Uh, we have a special uh, weekend uh, that week. Oh, I can pay you $1,800. And of course, I used to making $400. So $1,800 <laughs> is really good. And $1,800. Wow, really? Do you need me to send you a headshot? No, don't worry. Uh, we'll have somebody sketch you when you get to the club. <laughs> and I'm still buying it because he, he'd take elements of truth because in Lansing, at, at Lansing at Connections, they did have a caricature sketch you. So, oh, maybe maybe it's like that deal with Lance. And I said, okay, well, you want to send me some directions? No, no, don't worry about it. Um, we're going to send someone to pick you up because it was local. We'll send someone to, uh, we'll send someone to pick you up. It's a, and I was like, oh, well, they do pick you up. If you do Fort Wayne, they have a deal where they pick you up at the hotel. Okay. And, and so he combined all these truths. And then I realized, I'm like, okay, so wait. So it's the 18th. It's $1,800. You're going to sketch me. You're going to pick me up. And, and, and it's a hotel room. And then I realized, oh, this is all a fake gig. This is all. And I, Garland. <laughs> he thought it was so hilarious. And I still, I, he, he still gets me with that. He's so that but see, that was the, that's the, always funny because you could always like. BS a comic because we yeah. all wanted work. So you yeah. could sit there and you could sit there and that's just, that's hysterical. The best thing was the hotel gig. You'd almost take anything if it was a hotel. Oh, yeah. Just, just to be in a hotel. It's like, and that's the same thing. It's, I remember I went from doing Trump's Castle. They had a little comedy huh? club called Coconuts. Yeah. And it was great. So I got to stay in Trump's Castle. And then a week later, I'm in uh, 
Erie, Pennsylvania, and they're putting us up in a converted trailer park. Oh, sure. And I'm like, great. I pull up to the hotel. Because you're getting a little cocky. Like, yeah, oh, it's just a Trump's castle. Yeah. And you go, wait, what? It's this a trailer. It, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, don't worry. It locks. What, what is it with the What is it with the tropical fruit that lends itself to comedy? Bananas, <laughs> coconuts. <laughs> it's, what is it? Why is that? Funny? Papayas. Pa- no. No. It's mango, <laughs> kiwi. No. Wh- I don't know why. So okay. So you you were writing on the George Bunn show, but now you got to produce. What was the difference between going from writer to producer? No, it's no no difference. That's just a Writers Guild designation. So I was a writer. That was my first. I'd gone from writing for a late night show for Stephen Leo. That's what got me into the into the guild. And then I got uh, George Went was just a my title was producer because I came in high I you know I was in on the original concept so they th- and then I had a momentous decision after George Went ended and and I had a chance to, everybody loves Raymond was the pilot was going Phil said do you know Ray Romano and I'd worked with Ray Romano you know in 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 your in when you're in a city you're graduating class the sort of the comics who are new with you so my guys were Ray John Stewart Jeff Stilson. Um, Brian Regan, um, although the, although those guys, like Scrovan was ahead of me. Steve Scrovan was a, a little older than I was, but those guys were all, uh, uh, Ray was an improv act and I was really a strip or catch act. Although Ray and I overlapped a catch. We both worked a catch. And so, um, um, but anyway, so when Phil got this deal with Ray, I knew Phil because he'd been a writer on, on Down the Shore and Phil was writing this show for this guy, Ray Romano. And he said, do you know Ray Romano? I said, yeah, he's fantastic. Um, he said, yeah, he would, you know, I think to... You know, I'd sort of gone through that process of being, you know, a guy with a sit, you know, a comic with a sitcom. And I think there was some measure of comfort with Ray that because I knew him. So I worked on that pilot um, as a punch up guy. And so that was the best thing that ever happened. Now, I also got an offer because I worked with Jeff Foxworthy on the road. I'd worked with Foxworthy when he came through Chicago and we got on very well. And so I was offered uh, the Foxworthy show and Everybody Loves Raymond in the same year. And my agent, um, because uh, the I think uh, Foxworthy paid fifteen hundred dollars more a show, of course advised me to take the Foxworthy show, and I said, uh, absolutely not. This Raymond show, I understand, I can right. get it, and I like Jeff's jokes, but I can't write that. I don't know what that show is. Well, yeah, I mean, it's also, I mean, that's you're from, I mean, Boston, New York. Yeah, you know, it's and all, the it's Jew- all the same. And the Jewish sensibility, and I just, I just got it, you know, and so, so I knew that there was some some legs there i felt like there was you know and it was the it was a, a good artistic i don't really make these kind of decisions very often i i'm by those kind i mean good right um and it was a good decision and so i stayed with raymond for nine years and i remember after the second year someone on our show said well this is it you know you can sign a deal anywhere in those days you could sign a deal if you were two years on a hit show you could sign a deal somewhere and make a lot of money and um and I didn't leave. I said, I'm writing the show I know how to write. I'm going to stay here. And we all stayed. The, the, the business changed while we were on that show. Did you think, I mean, because, you know, when the, when the show came out, I mean, as you said, if you're a comic, I, I still remember Romano when there was the comedy stop at the Tropicana, yeah. the contest. I made the finals. I made, I made the final 25. Nice. And a group, a Nick Carmen Cosentino took like third. This guy, group called Nuclear Fish took second. They were a musical group. Mm-hmm. And Ray won. But this is before Ray. Like Ray was doing the thing where like his hair would sure he would pull, do that. He would do and he would yeah. do the thing. He would do the closer and, with the rubber band on and, the hair. Sure. Well, I mean, and it's funny because he was a comic, but he wasn't that known. When when you joined that show, I mean, you knew the sensibilities, you knew how to write it. Uh-huh. Did you think? I mean, it would become such a huge hit because I mean, it it's a huge. I mean, it ran for I mean Emmys. You've, you're an Emmy winner from that. Yeah. You know, you yeah. Just, no one knows. You know, no one knows. No one knows what you have when you start. Some of some of TV is overcoming your pilot. You know, you're you write this pilot. Although Raymond, there wasn't much to overcome. It was a. I still. And someone asked for you know, you know, I've taught. I've taught classes in comedy. I don't teach sitcom writing, but I, but I've, but when people, but I've taught classes in developing comedy. And when people ask, I don't do anything on, on sitcoms per se, but I do have kids ask all the time, Hey, do you have an example of a, of a pilot you can send me? And I send them the Raymond pilot because it's so, it's clear. It's so, the story is clear. The characters are identifiable. The relationships are very, very understandable right away and immediately. And that's what it had. So unlike the Goldbergs, which I think is a little more, because of the 80s construct of the Goldbergs, there was so much of that in the pilot. And we sort of had to, now if you watch the show, it is much more relationship centric. We still do a lot of the 80s stuff, which really resonates. And it's great tweetable stuff. People love to go back. Oh my God, he's drinking an ecto cooler. They love that. Um, But I really like, um, 
I, I, you know, my thing is writing relationship comedies and family comedies specifically. And uh, Raymond was easy to understand, and the Goldbergs is easy to, easy to understand. And I don't think it's a it's an accident that I'm having a good time and and success on both shows. Now, did you stay for the full run with Raymond? I stayed for nine years. And so that yeah, so, that was it. So what was it like when it ended? I mean, it must be weird because you guys, you must get so it, it's. You spend so much time there, and it must be like another family. And of course, you guys went at the right time, which was smart because you went on the top. I thought we had overstayed our welcome okay. actually after season seven. I I remember one time we were talking about a show, we we're arguing, and we we're saying we already did a show where Ray is selfish, and they said, yeah, but no, in this one he's not selfish, he's self-centered. Like, <laughs> oh boy, we are cutting the onion pretty thin here. But I will say this: I, I was wrong. Um, in season eight, we had a meeting. They said, well, let's have a meeting to see if we can do season nine, and I. I was whiny. I was real whiny by then. I was spoiled and I was whiny. And I said, yeah, if we're having a meeting, it means we're doing it. And so I was kind of overruled and sure we did do it. And I wasn't about to leave. Um, and and I would think, I, I like to think that our work in season nine was better than eight. And that I think it was because we could see the finish line. I thought we really did. I thought we did really good episodes. The last 16, I thought are among, probably among our best. Because you want, that's, that's your legacy. I mean, that's when yeah. people watch that, you know, because everyone says Seinfeld. I love Seinfeld, but yeah. everyone goes, oh, the last episode sucked. And yeah. that's what people always remember. They go, oh. The last like, episode of Raymond, I thought was a great finale. It's where, um, <laughs> I mean, Doris climbs into bed with Ray because she thinks he might've almost died on the, uh, when he had his adenoids out and, and Deborah says, I always knew this would happen at some point. <laughs> and and he can't, because his voice is down, he can't say I love you. And he's never been able to say I love you, but he acts it out with his hands. And it, right, you know, part of it, part, part of, I talk about overcoming your pilot. Part of it is also, you don't know if the guy can do it. Who knew if Ray, first of all, you don't know if the, if the actors are going to work well together. They're, they're, all it takes is one thing to screw up your pilot. Everything has to go right for your pilot to, for your pilot to work as a series. But only one, one thing can screw it up. You know, if you cast it poorly, gone. If it if it doesn't look right, gone. Bad time slot, gone. Like there are a million things that can kill it, but you have to have all those things working in concert to get it to go right. And Raymond did have that. And Ray, of course, showed the world that he he was a great actor. I never write to my, I never answer critics. I never, I mean, it doesn't come up much, but it, but it, like when someone writes something about something I'm working on, I, I never, I just let it roll off my back. But someone, when I did Men of a Certain Age, someone said, well, this show which is the show Ray did after after Raymond, which is a great show. I you know I thought I watched it. it was... I'm really proud of it. I thought it was great. And I said, well, they they said, well, on on Everybody Loves Raymond, um, he was just basically playing a, a version of himself. And um, and on Men of a Certain Age, he's really grown as an actor. You can see how much he's grown. And if you know anything about Ray, you know the opposite is true. He's way more neurotic and serious in real life than he is sort of just the guy who avoids work. And you know, you know, wants to go to his mom's house and have have a cannoli. Well, that's like the documentary him and Cattabiano did. Yeah, uh, it's the same thing. You yeah, see so you him, see that. You see him different, and I can't think of, it's something yes, ninety five miles 90, to go. Yeah, and 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 I really think so. I actually wrote to the Boston Globe and I said I'm only writing to you because you're my home paper, but people miss this. This is how great an actor Ray Romano is, and um, and I, so so I really believe he he showed how fantastic he was, and and you have to have the center of the show be so identifiable and so sympathetic and yet not just goody two-shoes. You know, you have to have a, a rounded character, and, and that's what that show was, and that's that's why it was successful. What was it like winning an Emmy? Was that just like a great feeling? I mean, One of the greatest things ever everybody should cause, do Because, no, I, I heard, <laughs> that, like, someone said, you well, you guys weren't expected to win it that year. No, uh, I, well... It was we, Desperate Housewives was supposed we, to win it. Yeah, well, that was a great... Well, so, first of all, I, I did one thing. Um... We, we were nominated. I remember when, you know, first of all, it is just great to be nominated. People who tell you uh, that it, you want to win, that's fine. But you're going to a big fancy party and you're seeing all your friends in show business and you're drinking high class hooch and and eating food you'd never Did eat. you get a gift bag? You get, no, no, a writer? Who gives a writer oh, a gift bag? You, you get a, yeah, you get a, you get a, a, one of those things that the, the car wash hangs <laughs> in your car from your rear. That's, that's your gift bag. Um, no, I, we, you, it's, it's. Great fun. It's a great evening. But then after you do that a couple of times, you kind of want to win. So one year I thought, I said, this is the year we're going to win. And I took, now I realized, because I've been to the governor's ball, that everyone gets an Emmy and you stick it on a table and it's just there. Well, you know, uh, Tom Brady or Bill Belichick type could come in and just steal your Emmy if they wanted. <laughs> so what I did was I took, uh, I took a piece of masking tape and I wrote Schneider on the bottom of, uh, on the masking tape. And I taped it to the bottom of my shoe in that area between the heel and the, 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 the front Okay. <laughs> part so that it wouldn't get ruined. And when we won the Emmy, first of all, it was great. I, I do want to, I've always loved that this happened. Our crew 
from Raymond jobbed out and worked the Emmy show. And so our cable pullers on our on our four camera crew were the guys who, when they stuck a camera in Ray's face, the camera was, I think the camera was held by one of our guys, maybe not, but the guy pulling the cable was definitely Scott Spiegel, one of our cable pullers. So it was cool for him. He's pulling cable and he's basically yelling, I can't fucking believe it. I can't. <laughs> and we're basically like, hugging, it's like hugging your caddy. And like, so I'm looking right at him. Like, as we, first of all, when we won the first time, I forgot to kiss my wife. I basically stiff armed her to get out of the aisle, which is one of the low points in our marriage to see my wife dabbing softly at her lip because she's bleeding slightly because I've given her a good forearm shiver on my way to the stage. But we got up there and also my brother, we'd, my brother had come out with his wife and my sister-in-law from Boston was there and she was wearing a strapless, uh, um, sleeveless dress and she's from Boston. So remember this is, uh, she's already looking like New England pasties. Right. So I don't know where they're sitting except when she raised her hands in victory, I could see these beautiful white batons <laughs> like the guys at the airplane. I was like, oh, there's Sonia's snowy white arms. Uh, and, and I could see them from the stage. So that was pretty unbelievably great. And it was a great night. And, uh, you can walk, if you're, if you're holding an Emmy, you can do almost whatever you want. Uh, and you, including walking on the streets with alcohol. We were walking right by LAPD, as long as we weren't in the streets, like we were just walking right. on the sidewalk to get into limos. <laughs> and also, it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. If you're holding an Emmy, you can talk to whoever you want at an HBO party. So The Sopranos was going great guns at that time. And and Ricky Gervais and Steve Merchant were there, and I think the world of those guys. So I talked to everybody. It was like I basically had to like wave my Emmy in their face, otherwise they wouldn't even look at me. But I was like, hi, hi, I want to say how great you are. And so that was great. And then the second time we won, we really weren't supposed to win the last year of the show. And uh, that was just icing on the cake, and it was great, and I uh, I appreciate it so much. Where do you where do you put them? Where are they? Are they in the house? That is a dirty, dirty question. Um, first of all, you're not supposed to touch them. I don't know if. By the, by the way, it's such a great metaphor for show business. When you get your Emmy, well, first of all, when you get your Emmy, you're hustled backstage. The Emmy that's given to the showrunner or producer, the guy who's going to speak, is immediately snatched from his hand. <laughs> and then they shuttle you to what looks like a glorified coat check kind of area, and there are some women there with the program of the evening's program, just what the same thing that everyone's given when they walk in the door. And it just basically has your name. If you say, they'll, they'll, they sort of listen, what just one, everybody loves Raymond. And they go to that page and they look at whose name is on there. And so when you walk up there, you say, uh, everybody loves Raymond, just one for you. You're, they're like next, next. And you come up and you go, hi, I'm here to get an Emmy. Okay. What's your name? Schneider. What show? Uh, what category? Uh, outstanding comedy. Uh, Schneider. Here you go. Congratulations. Go next. And, and so they just kind of scream at you. And if you're me, then you put, the, if you're me, then you put that piece of tape right. on your Emmy so that all night long, people are like, what are you doing? I'm like, I know which one mine is. I have mine. And so I've kept that tape on there. Now, there's nothing on it that says your name at the time. They don't know you won. So there's there's no collar on it. The collar okay. comes later that says outstanding comedy, executive producer, whatever. That gets mailed to you. And what you're supposed to do then is take a razor blade and cut the bottom of the Emmy. There's a there's a there's felt on the bottom. You cut it, and then there's a big nut in there. And you, it's, it'd be better if it was a wing nut, but it's not. You have to take some tool in your house. They assume that some writer has a tool. So you have to wrestle this nut and strip this bolt nut off and then put take the collar off put your collar and then put this weight in it's all a fake weight it's a there's a lead weight in there that gives it weight so when it looks like it weighs something it's just like hollywood it's it's a sort of gold-plated thing hollow on the inside with a lot of dead weight in there and that's basically the hollywood experience that's what you deal with here and so don't get excited about it and then you're never supposed to touch it it does it comes with instructions don't touch it you'll tarnish it the oils from your hands will ruin your emmy so he's just you, you put it. So but let's say you put it on your shelf. You have to clean your shelf. You never clean around. I mean, I look how many surfers journals can there be up there supporting right. Miami? So that's why I. So no, it's up in my room. It's not downstairs. Um, it's up there. There's a Peabody Award because I won one of those for Men of a How do because because my next guest is a Peabody Peabody Award winner. How do you win a Peabody? Uh, that you have to be a subscriber to NPR. Uh, no one cares about a Peabody except people on NPR. If you ever do an NPR, it's congratulations on the award. What? Oh, the Peabody. Oh, the Peabody. You win a Peabody because somebody at the University of Georgia Journalism School says your show is worthy of it. And, and you like it because Jon Stewart wins them. Okay. And then you feel great because anything he has is better than what you have. So <laughs> so after uh, Everyone Loves Raymond. Well, I know Stop you, saying everyone. I, it's everybody. I know. I just always forget. I know. I'm sorry. I, the nation doesn't forget. Steve. I know. I'm sorry, people. I'm a bad person. Well, I know you wrote you wrote for American Dad. Yeah. yeah. About the, now, that was on a 20th Century Fox deal. And I got... Uh, and they, you know, they, they try to put you onto shows and I loved it over there. I had a great time. I worked 10 episodes over there and I loved it. Was it different doing going animation or? I had no idea what I was doing. Sure. Okay. It was really different. <laughs> the actors don't talk back. It's, it's painstaking. My son works on an animated show now and it's really 
like it's I forget how slow it is. Like you do something and then it shows up like 14 months later, I, you know, 16 months later. It's incredibly time consuming, but it's fun. There's but no table reads or anything. So there is. There are table reads. Oh, yeah, and the, the great thing is that Seth MacFarlane is I, like I never talked to Seth, but he was, um, you know, sometimes and he did all the voices on American Dad as well as Family Guy. We were, you know, we're in the same offices. American Dad is the same offices as Family Guy, which is hilarious. It's literally like oh, da, 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 Reese's peanut butter cups. No, 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 no. Those are for Family Guy. You can have some pretzels. You know, like <laughs> like you can't touch anything. Like it is so you are so the redheaded stepchild. But they they do not give a shit about you. But but Seth, the great thing is that he can do all these voices. So sometimes he'd be four characters on a page, which is really miraculous to watch just to have him answer himself and make the faces as he does it. Really amazing. So I, I loved working over there. Now we talked about men of a certain age, which I thought was a great show. Great cast. I mean, Bakula, amazing. Brower, I mean, Ray Manfrelotti was in it. Unbelievable. And uh, it, now was that something different for you now? Cause you, okay, you've gone from, you know, well, you think about it, you, you were, you were acting in sitcoms. You started yeah. off as a standup, you're acting in sitcoms. Then you, are basically sitcom writing writer, for sitcoms right. and then you do an animation which is different although it's still comedy yeah. now you're going to something and i think it's like any anyone who's first put on men of a certain age this is nothing against people in the country right. but a lot of people i'm sure put it on for the first time and they said wait romano's not funny this yeah. and for me i knew when i saw the cast and you can uh, tell when it's an hour yeah you say okay this is going to be a yeah. Drama. Yeah. And, and it's not even a dramedy. It was just good television. It, it was well, everyday life. Well, we kind of approach it like everybody, everyday life, which is the, the comedy comes out of things that are uncomfortable. Um, so it was the sort of comedy discomfort. We did pitch it that way. We did say, oh, wouldn't it be a funny thing like if if Albert Ray's son says uh, spray paints books are gay on a wall? Because how do you respond to that as a parent? Because that, right. that happened in our in our town. Um we never ended up doing that. We we got trouble for that. But I think, but but books are getting. How do you respond? No, they're not. Well, some books are. Well, like how, how right. do you, how do you explain to your kids? Look, you're not supposed to say that books are gay. Books can't be gay. And and if they are, they're they're fine. There's nothing wrong with <laughs> with with that. Don't God. You just as a parent, you just want to say knock it off. Ninety percent of the parenting is knock it off. And that's what Ray had to deal with. Like he has a kid who's anxious in the show. It was just all. It was all, you know, it was all the comedy discomfort driving back over an animal because you're not sure if you killed right. it. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's that's funny. Was it intimidating though for you to not intimidating before when you're writing that new area, but probably made it more comfortable because you knew. I felt like right. it was easier because you just had to. <laughs> I always do jokes about like in a writer's room, every, the end of every page has to be funny, and in, on this show, like uh, things just had to be meaningful. It's like, so someone just had to make a meaningful face at the end of the page right. or like on one hour, what's a room like on a one hour, like on one of these procedurals where it's like, you know, at the on, on comedy rooms, when you get to the end of act, are we laughing here? Are we laughing? Is this funny? And what do you think they're saying at the, yeah. uh, an hour? Are we suspicious? Is anybody uneasy? Criminal minds. Yeah, Criminal minds. Are, are we creeped out? Right. Are you really creeped, creeped out? out? Do we need more hair from the hooker? Can, are we, do we get it that it's a fiber? <laughs> Do we know it's a fiber? It's always a fiber, by the way. They're always finding fiber. Right. I know. It's... And by the way, and, and, and if you ever talk to someone in real law enforcement, they almost never, the fibers almost never work. Well, I always laugh because my, my girlfriend watches Dateline and 48 yeah. Hours and all that stuff. And I always, I always crack up on Dateline because there's always some guy who thinks he's smarter than every police detective. And then he kills his wife. Like there's one, she gets shot in a garage and they take a burrito and it's like wait a second you know you're going to get caught yes. i mean it's just it's so funny they always sit there and they think they're a, they're so sociopath and they're just they think oh yeah the cops are never going to catch us no and then they see them in court and they're dicks i love it yeah well you know people that's you know, kids crime doesn't pay let steve cooper let you know <laughs> this if we do nothing else in this podcast let's drive home the point tom brady bill belichick Crime doesn't pay. Is it crime to deflate a ball? No. Is it crime to spy on the Jets more than deflating a ball? But yeah. now, do you miss stand up at all? I mean, clearly, no. You know what? I I do sometimes. I end up getting. I'm still a whore. I will say yes to the worst benefit, and I've done so many bad ones. I, the, but worst, the benefit I saw you. That was an amazing. Well, that lineup. was that was political. That was that was a really good one. But that was that was, that was a night of comedy. Right. I don't. I'm doing a night of misery, and I literally, <laughs> I literally am doing nothing away from this group. I am doing in October. Grief Haven. What? Yep. Grief Haven. What? Grief Haven. The organization of parents who have lost children. 
Their children have died. Why did I say yes? And why do they want me? And why are I mean, what, what, I, mean, mean, I know you people have suffered, but hey, have you ever noticed what's with, hey, come on, what's a, what's a selfie stick? Like, I, I'm going to die. But luckily, the reason I took it, I was assured by the person who booked me that I, I, of course, I can't make fun of those people and I can't make fun with them. But uh, there's an auction, so you you just serve a purpose. I'll, right. I'll I'll be the funny auctioneer. I can make fun of the I can make fun of the items that <laughs> here's no an one, earned that no one will let. <laughs> oh please, Stephen, Stephen, I'm sorry, Stephen. Uh, now you ended up on an episode of Curb. How did how did that come about? That's Jeff Garland, who I know from Chicago, and I've known Larry a long time. Larry used to be married to my first. I had two managers. My first manager was Lori David. She okay. was Lori Leonard at the time, but um, and she married uh. She married Larry, and at the time, she had a lot of people that I loved. She had uh, Jeff Stilson and Carol Leifer and Jonathan Katz and Adam Resnick and Chris Elliott. Like it was a it was a good group to be part of. Um, but uh, so I guess Jeff, they needed people to play cards in a card game, and Jeff said, "What are you doing?" And come down. And Phil Rosenthal and Alan Kirschenbaum and I came and played played cards with Kevin Nealon, who has become a friend of mine. And um, it was great fun, and I was worried that I would get cut. You can't be too funny around Larry because Larry's going to be funny, and you don't really – don't try to steal any – don't try to make jokes. He'll cut you. So I, I was worried that I would be cut from the scene. So because we're playing cards, I said, oh, there's one sure way not to be cut is to deal the cards. So the second we sat down at the table, I grabbed the cards and started dealing. So I knew that even – so they couldn't cut me out, and I did, never told anyone I was doing it, so my whole family had to watch and go, oh, my God, he's on the air. It's fantastic. <laughs> So yeah, that's how that came about. Now, how the on the Goldbergs? First of all, it's it's one. Of the, I love that show. Thank and you. I think it's awesome because you know I grew up in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, uh -huh. and like the fun Barry with his flyer shirt and and the posters. I'm always I'm waiting for a Hooters poster. Yeah, I've been waiting. Hooters are pen guys, so two of them anyway. And yeah, and, yeah, and I, I sit there and because me and my girlfriend crack up, we're like. Did they change her posters every week? And I don't know. We if they do, do change them sometimes. See my girlfriend. Very good. Okay, she noticed it because my girlfriend noticed like, all that we stuff. We put we put the Tiffany poster in in yeah, the place. Springfield. Yes, yeah. that's exactly right. God, Steve, you're paying really close. I could because because I love that show because I'm not Jewish, but I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood. Uh -huh. Cherry Hill is very Jewish. Yeah, and and the Flyers goalies always live there. Yeah, and actually, very <laughs> funny story about Didn't the that Flyers. guy die. One of well, the... Polly Lindbergh. Polly Lindbergh. But Bernie Perrant used to live next door to a buddy of mine in high school named Tom Watson. And I was I went to his school after class, not the golfer, uh -huh. but a guy named Tom Watson, a fat redhead. And kid. not Joe or Bill Watson, the former Flyer. Exactly, right. exactly. And I remember we, we were sitting there and we used to play street hockey in front yeah. of his house. And Bernie Perrant pulls up in his car and he gets out. And he's got like back then the slacks and you know the, sure. the shirt and he's like, hey. But they still have slacks and shirts. Yeah, but not like you know like the eighty like okay, that. And he say. says, can I can I get in the net? And we're like, oh. So he gets in and of course you know us shooting a Milek ball yes. against him is nothing because yeah, yeah he's he just stopping hundred mile an hour. Running. And I don't know how, but I got one past him and it made my day. I think he maybe just felt bad, but we were he was just sitting there and he's deflecting stuff. But it was so cool. Oh, and that's God. that's why I love the show because I even. Uh, it's Adam F. Goldberg. Yep. Yeah. Boy. Not the writer. Not not the actor. People always no, think it's the creator who right. who was you know went to that school. He went to very, yes. He went very, to uh, Penn Chart. Yeah. Very interesting story. And I I tweeted him one time. I said, where did you get that shirt? Because I have to find out. Because that yeah. flyer shirt. Because he wears it every episode. Yep. But it's like vintage, but it's cool. It is. Um. Well, too interesting. I back. This is another situation of like never uh, never throw a person out. Um. My wife, when we were living in Chicago, taught at the Latin School of Chicago. And uh, her first job, she was uh, like, she was sort of a fill-in teacher, but she also was the after-school program coordinator. And she was scrambling to come up with something for the non-athletic kids. And she said, well, how about uh, an improv class taught by a comedy team, Schneider and Holmes? So Schneider and Holmes, that was me and my partner, Bill, uh, taught this after-school improv class for third, fourth, and fifth graders, including Sarah Henley was one of the kids. Sarah Henley happened to be the daughter of Liz's boss, my wife's boss, who eventually became the head of the lower school. Sarah Henley then was fourth grade. Now she's married to Adam F. Goldberg, creator of the Goldbergs. Okay. So when they came out, when Sarah and Adam came out to California, I was already working on Raymond, and Adam and Sarah had met, and Adam was already a writer, and Linda, his mother-in-law, said, you have to look up Liz and Lou. Um, and Adam uh, and I talked, and I guess I was fairly encouraging. Uh, he was a, certainly a funny guy and, and really talented, and I guess I was fairly encouraging. And we kept up a relationship, and he uh, offered me a job on another show 
um, that he had, but I could never have done it because it was something I didn't understand. It was called Breaking In. It was with Christian Slater. And there was a lot, of, a lot of young people typing and then turning to each other and saying, I'm in. But I don't know what they were typing that made them go in. I don't know why they wanted to go in, and I didn't want to go there with them. I, I don't know. But I said, Adam, because he told me these family stories, and he'd even show me video, which you see these videos. Amazing. Yeah, he'd show me all these videos or a, or, or a comp reel that he'd cut together of his crazy freaking family. And he said, um, this is a show. And I said, well, if you sell that show, please, please, please hire me. Well, and in, you know, he said he would. And in Hollywood, that means zero. Um, but it didn't mean zero. And I think part of the reason it didn't mean zero is because Jeff Garland was in the, it was in the pilot. And, uh, and he lobbied hard to have me come on. And I've known Garland a long time. And he can be... Uh, G- you can be opinionated and they like Adam has too much to do to like to sort of adjust things for Jeff's sensibility all the time. And I, like, I mean, um, and I have a shorthand with Jeff. So I think I was sort of hired as a, as a bit of a, um, you know, a, sort of a, a hands on Garland guy. Um, but it became more than that. The job became, my parents are social workers or they were, um, and uh, I think there's a great deal of that. I'm the onset guy. I'm there all day. Every time there's a, an actor on set, I'm there. I don't go to the writer's room. After pre-production, I don't even go back to the room. I stay on the set all day long. I've directed one now. I'll probably direct a couple more next year. And this cast is fantastic. But I do have a shorthand with them because the directors come and go. But I'm there all the time. Right. So um, so I'm kind of the continuity of care person. I, you know, I know how the show is supposed to sound and what it's supposed to be like. And the great thing for me is if something doesn't work, I can fix it on the fly. It's a little bit pressure-filled sometimes in that way. But it's also I know my jokes are going to get in. At least they'll get to editing because I can, I can always ask for one more take and have them do my joke. And Jeff is great that way. Jeff is always like, what do you have? What do, what's your joke here? Let's do yours. And so I, I get that. Jeff bonus. You know. Now, how did you come about getting that directing? Uh, cause that one, cause now have you directed TV before? I had not, Okay, but so- I'd done the onset gig for men of a certain age a lot. And, um, and I just, I, you know, because having been an actor, I know, I guess what they're going through a little bit. Um, and I know, I know what the writers want and I know what the actors are faced with. And so I think I can mediate. There's a lot of mediation. So, um, I, the actor always, I mean, the actor has to understand and they usually do that, that the writer has no interest in making them look like a fool. So there's just that sense of, you know, you, the actor only has the tools you've given them. So you're just trying to maximize, you know, the, uh, the, you know, trying to make the best of the toolbox. So, uh, so I have that. And then the, and then the writers also have the thing is like, why won't they say what, what I wrote? Well, because it doesn't always feel comfortable. So, it, so it's finding that, that comfort level, making something work from both from both angles. And in terms of directing, uh, the hardest thing for me is, is the visual sense. I'm like learning that, Oh, like you can't shoot every angle. Like you'll spend hours lighting. So okay. it's learning that stuff. So, um, I have a great DP and a great crew and Adam Goldberg knows what he wants. Um, when he shoots and Doug Robinson, who's his producing partner, they know what they want. So, um, so I, I, I think I'm able to interpret it now, and that's that's the director's job. And I think I've gotten a, a little bit of uh, that experience. Now, when you finished that first episode directing, mm-hmm. it was probably a, somewhat of a sigh of relief because it's, yes, it's for sure. I mean, it's a new position for you. And after you did that, is that something you, you would want to transition into direct? I mean, you said you might direct well, a few more. Or... Yeah, it's a job you can do with gray hair. Um, you know, in, in Hollywood, there aren't a lot of jobs. Listen, uh, no one was interested in hiring me when I got this after two years of of working on, uh, I worked on Men of a Certain Age for two years, and then, so that's two years out of comedy. Then I came back, and I was still working off an old, I mean, price-wise, I was working off an old quote. Well, uh, guys at that level of money, they have deals, overall deals at studios. I didn't have one. But why would they hire Lou Schneider from the outside when they can hire some guy who's on a deal? If his pilot doesn't go, we'll put him on whatever show they have. So I was sort of out in the cold. So I, it was a sort of a real come-to-Jesus moment for me and my agent to say, like, like drop my price. So I took the lowest amount of, I, I made on, on the first year of the Goldbergs, I made less money than I made in the, like, in not the first year of Raymond, but maybe the third year of Raymond, I was back to that money. And that's okay. You know, listen, uh, you know, if you want to work, work, no one's holding a gun in your head. So I took a, a terrible deal and, uh, you know, it's like a ball player. You take a crappy deal, you show them what you can do. And if you do the job, then they have to pay you later. And so, you know, luckily I've been able to hang around and, you know, the money's gone up. So that, but it was, uh, but it was a real sort of sobering thought like, well, am I still doing this or am I going to do something else? And uh, because I have no other skills, I was a history major, you do this. Right. 
Or, or you host. And so, a, so now, yes, yeah, so now you host, right, you host a yes, podcast. Brief. Yes, yes, you host the Bereaved Grief, grief Haven. No, but <laughs> luckily, no, luckily I'm able to, you know, now I feel like I do like this part of the directing and, and I would do it. Um, God, David Katzenberg does 14 of them. I don't know that I have the stamina. He's young. I don't know if I have the stamina to do 14, but I could do a, a, a number every year would, would be just the right way to go quietly into the sunset, I think. And so, but it's a joy. It's fulfilling for you though. I mean, it is, for sure. Because, you know. Oh, for sure. Now, when you sit there, uh, if, if do you ever change up the jokes you would write? I mean, if... I change, you change everything. Okay. I mean... You change everything that's not working. Or, by the way, even if it does work, sometimes you're cutting for time. Like, we cut we cut the we cut the Goldbergs to, to time. Like, we rebuild it, in, not we, Adam rebuilds it in editing. So, some you, you can't shoot, you're trying to anticipate, like, I want to shoot the quickest possible version of this. This is a great joke, but it's too long. We 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 lose whole chunks of stories. Uh, not story. You keep story. We lose whole comedy runs in the show because they're just too long. You know, I think we write a little too long on the Goldbergs, and I think we shoot a little too long in the Goldbergs. And our shows, you know, you're, you're, now we, you know, every show, show uses voiceover now. Why? Because you only have 21 minutes, 2130 now. It okay. used, to be, used to be much longer. On Raymond, it was 22 and a half or 23 when we started. You know, now we cover stuff with Goldbergs. We say things like, while this was happening, this was happening. Luckily, we have the great Patton Oswalt's voice to do it. But And Modern Family does it with those with those uh, cutaways to those single shots. I don't know I don't know how you do it the old way, which is where actors just act it. Right. Now, will it be a challenge as they get older for you to write for them? Well, it'll be a challenge for George. Uh, yeah, it, it's going to be a challenge for George because he's turning 82. Um, I he, can't believe that. He's unbelievable. I, he's, I was sitting there. I, I mean, my girlfriend were talking. Like, I'm like, he's been, I'm like, how old is he? He's got to be like... No, the guy's, 71. I'm like, 81? That means he was like 60-something and just shoot me, and he killed it yeah, all the time. Yeah, he's, he's an unbelievable star. He, he's he's unbelievably fantastic. I mean, it takes him a little while to warm up, but that's everybody. And then once through it, you can start, you know, I always like it to like driving a high-performance sports car. You can make slight adjustments. My favorite thing in the directing and, and in doing my regular job on set is just making the slight adjustment, saying just put a little more air in before you say this last word or... Just give me a little more anger in the second line or, or less so you can build to it in the third line. And they're unbelievable. Um, the, the, the key to this show, of course, is Sean Gambroni having the kid who's getting old. Um, if that kid isn't good, the show stinks. Right. Because he's the, uh, he's the Fred Savage. He's the eyes and ears of this show. If this is the Wonder Years, he's Fred Savage. Um, you have to have a kid who the audience really feels for. And he is amazing that way. And I think what part of his charm is that he's not from Hollywood, that he came from Chicago and he brings that sort of naivete to it. And like that he, he's learning as the audience is learning. I, I just think he's fantastic. So well, it's a, I mean, it's, a smart it's, kid. it's a great show. As I said, it's uh, what I have to check the time. Cause we have three minutes left. Please. Um, I always know it's just what makes it good. As I said, it's cause I'm from that era and, and it, you nail it. I mean, that's the thing is it's not cause my girlfriend will always say, I had a skirt like that, or I wore that. And that's, what's great. Cause like younger kids will watch a show and get it. And that's what's good about it. Adults love it. I mean, anyone from Cherry yeah. Hill. I tell people, I, I put on Facebook, if you're from Cherry Hill and you graduated around my time, and if you don't watch the Goldbergs, you're an idiot. Yeah, people are really, I love that, you know, it makes me think that what I've done in the past must really have sucked because it's been a long time. I'm now getting again, which is, boy, I like your show. Like, where were we for the last eight years? You know, nobody said anything. We said crap for eight years. No, but now it's really nice. And, and I like that families watch it. I, I Maybe that's old fashioned to me, but I like that... Uh, you know, in the absence of actually having conversations with each other, uh, it is very nice for families to sit down and mindlessly stare <laughs> at a television together. So if we can do that for people. So now when do you go back into production? Uh, the 20, right after Memorial Day, so the 26th. So you ended how long ago? May 13, uh, March 13th. And so then so then you go back. So you have about two months off. We have about, yeah, it's great. And right. it's exhausting because my hours are like 70 hour weeks. When I'm on stage, I'm there because the crew works 12, 13 hour days. So I'm there every minute. So, but I don't go in. I used to go in when the, when the, because the cast works three weeks on one week off. And during that week off, I would go back to the writer's room and I would just fall asleep on the table. So they stopped making me go back to the room. So I, I do get that time off, which is fantastic. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. This is Steve, great. Steve, thank you very much. I have, ne I want to meet your girlfriend. You talked about her incessantly. I've never She's met a great her. great girl. When she comes in. in now, now, do you tweet or anything? I do. I, you could, I would love to be followed. If followers are the gold medal of tweeting. No, yes. Followers, the gold medal. Retweet is the silver medal. Favoriting is the bronze. Um, I'm at, at not that Lou, N-O-T-H-T-H-A-T-L-E-W, at not that Lou.
We'll follow him. Follow, follow him. Me, I bet he tweets some funny stuff. So, uh, you know, joke a day. Usually joke a joke a day. See, that's good. Okay. Follow me, people. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Also, go to my website, coopertalk.net, where I have over 370 episodes. You can go check them out. There's a lot of musicians, writers, actors, a bunch of people. It's a bull, you best. 1980s Flyers references. You'll yeah, exactly. Love There's even Ty Babylonia, the figure skater. She was on my show. What about Randy? No one cares about Randy. I know. Randy I Gardner, we Ty talked Babylonia. about him. Just funny. Also, people, uh, go to my new website, stopthesalt.com, stopthesalt.com. That's my uh, low-sodium cookbook I wrote after I got out of the hospital with the heart problem. I had to sit there and change my diet completely. I said, hey, you know what? People are afraid to cook. They get intimidated. There's no pictures, no big recipes, no tons of ingredients. Easy recipes. Take about 20 minutes to make. All heart healthy. They'll do you good. So go to StopTheSalt.com. You can buy it on Amazon, but if you go to StopTheSalt.com, I make more money and I'll sign it for you. So that's pretty good. That's a pretty good deal. And also, so uh, send me an email, cooper at coopertalk.net. I'm always answering you guys. And go to iTunes or Stitcher. It's once again, it's Cooper Talk. It's Cooper Talk everywhere. So follow Lou Schneider, not that Lou, on Twitter. Follow me at Cooper Talk on Twitter. Stopthesalt.com. Please buy the cookbook. Live healthy. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I will talk to you all next week. Very good, Steve.